are we limited to uh, the Earth, like exercising our dominion, or should we follow Elon Musk and say, hey, you know, let's let's make God's presence known on Mars as well? Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore all the deepest questions in philosophy, theology, nature, and life with experts in those fields. I really love thinking about cool stuff, and you're invited to come think with me. Today's episode is another very special one. I have with me Dr. G.K. Beale. Uh, if you are in any theology Facebook groups, you'll know him as G.K. The Real Deal Beale. Uh, I'm really excited to have this guy on. We're going to be talking about biblical theology, how it's a little bit different than uh, systematic theology, historical theology, and such. And then uh, we'll get into a little bit of his uh, The Temple and the Church's Mission book. It's, uh, as many people have said, is one of the best books in biblical theology. So figured let's get them on to uh, school us all on some biblical theology. I'm excited for it. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon. If you have benefited from this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can support me for a lot of different uh, amounts over there. And there's all sorts of different benefits that you get at each level of support. So without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Beal. Dr. Beal, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I wanted to uh, first first off just get a little bit of your story. How did you get into uh, New Testament theology and New Testament studies? Well, um it was a process. I, um, you know, in, in college, I became a Christian when I was a freshman in college, and uh, and then that caused me to want to take courses uh, that were either um, on the topic of biblical studies or philosophy or history, and so I majored in um, history and philosophy, minored in religion. Uh, which meant I took a you know several courses in world religions that sort of thing and then um, um, actually was able to take New Testament Greek when I was in college at Perkins uh-huh. School of Theology, which uh-huh. is the seminary on the campus of Southern Methodist University where I went to college and so when I finished college, I was still interested in um, uh, studying uh, biblical studies and so I went on to a seminary and uh, um, mainly worked in um, Hebrew Old Testament, but it did a lot of Greek as well. And, um, yeah, you know, after getting a THM at uh, um, this particular seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, I went uh, on to, I wanted to do more. Uh, I, at the same time I was at Dallas, I did a, an MA in historical theology at Southern Methodist University, where, again, I looked at a number of historical theological issues. And then um, I uh, went on to University of Cambridge uh, to uh, study the use of the old and the new. I, I was very open to doing just Old Testament. I was um, um, uh, open to going, uh, a fellow by the name of Helmer Rindgren was hmm. open to having me come as a student to study under him in Old Testament Hebrew, but I ended up studying at the University of Cambridge and, and, and really moving over to the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay. And uh, my uh, main work was on the use of Daniel in Jewish apocalyptic literature in, in the book of Revelation and comparing uh, how the two were used. Um, yeah. 
by uh, John and then by early Judaism. And so um, I um, got interested. Once you do Old and the New, then you're really, that's a major facet of biblical theology. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Right. So that sort of catapulted me into, you know, um, biblical theology. Um, when I wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation at the very uh, end of the commentary, the last vision of Revelation says that um, the new creation, uh, John equates it with a temple, a city, and the Garden of Eden. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, how in the world can the new creation be equated with a temple, a city, and the Garden of Eden? Right. And I had a little excursus trying to explain that, and I ended up turning that excursus into a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission. And um, my attempted answer was to go back to Genesis 1 to 3 and then see how that developed in the Old Testament, sort of in a seed that develops in an organic way. So anyway, then that got me into all kinds of biblical theology. Oh, awesome. Okay. In fact, right now we're finishing a dictionary called Dictionary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament mm-hmm. uh, that I'm editing together with uh, Don Carson, Ben Glad, and um, Andy Nacelli. That, that that will come out in about a year. But uh, again, that's going to, you know, that touches on a number of biblical theological issues. Yes. That's yeah, a longer yeah. answer than you probably wanted. <laughs> no, it's great. No, it's great. Um, um, so I, I, have, well, I have, I have, I have, what is it called? Is it um, called? Um, commentary on the New Testament's the- use of the old. And uh, that's, that's with you and, and Dr. Carson there. So what, what's this new book uh, that you guys are, are coming out with? Is it, how, how's that different? Let's see. The, uh, what, what you said, you have commentary on the New Testament use of the old. Comment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming out with a dictionary. Dictionary. There you go. Okay. The commentary goes through each book. Yeah. And takes every major quotation and the most significant allusions. You go book by book. Okay. This is really looking at issues like what is typology? What is allegory? Hmm. What is a Septuagint? What is a Targum? How does it all relate to old and New Testament studies? Um, Should we imitate? Uh, the hermeneutical approach of the New Testament writers today, or is it unique? Um, Do the New Testament writers use the Old Testament contextually in line with the original meaning or not? Um, So on and so on. Uh, There'll be 
articles on different subjects like the temple, which I'm writing and um, so on. So, okay. Well, that sounds awesome. Uh, so it's, to be, it's to be used together with the commentary actually. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Dr. Carson was my uh, biblical theology professor at Ted's. So I, I really look forward yeah. to, uh, to seeing that one with you guys as well. So how, how would that compare to like, this is like the standard right now, the new dictionary of biblical theology. Um, how might this be uh, this new project be, be similar or, or different to that to this guy right here? Dictionary of uh, New Testament. Uh, uh, the, what is it again? Dictionary yeah. of New Testament. Bib- the, the new yeah, dictionary me... of, of biblical theology. And this okay, is yeah. edited by Carson. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, he was sort of an uh, advisory editor of that. Now, this is much more uh, that. That, that's broadly on the issue of biblical theology. Ours is specifically on the issue okay. of the New Testament use of the old. Now, there might be some overlap. I mean, there, I'd have to look through it. There may be some essays, you know, that are um, uh, perhaps overlapping, you know, like Covenant. We do, we do approach some things. But again, um, our essays would be, for example, like on Covenant. How does that uh, uh, pertain to the New Testament use of the old. It's always geared in that way. Okay. And, um, of course, there's going to be some overlap because biblical theology does deal okay. with New Testament use a little bit. Sure. Um, but I don't think it'll be too overlapping. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to to, uh, to grabbing that then. Well, so we've we've mentioned biblical theology here and there already, um, and I just wanted to get. This might be really tough, but what what is biblical theology, and then maybe how how is it different from how is it different from systematic theology or historical or exegetical theology? Well, I, you know, systematic theology attempts to um, focus on the whole Bible and its parts um, as the Word of God, mm-hmm. and especially in that focus, you're looking for the logical connections across. Uh, uh, the whole spread of uh, of the Bible, and then what you're doing is okay. How how did that uh, get developed in historical theology? Um, historical theology really is a subset of systematic theology. And then, as you're doing all of this, as you're looking at the logical connections, you're looking at the history of theology, you're looking all, at all of that also in the light of contemporary discussions um, uh, of developments in philosophy, new intellectual climate, um, that sort of thing. Now, biblical theology is also looking at the whole Bible, but with a different focus. It's not really focusing on the logical connections of doctrines uh, you know, across the cross section of the Bible, it's looking at how does a a book or a corpus um, uh, relate to uh, the overall context of the Bible? But you look at the the book and the corpus first, uh, try to interpret, you know, its its overall movement and idea, mm-hmm. and then you uh, say, okay. Uh, how does that book relate to redemptive history? How does it relate to what precedes the epics preceding 
And what epic is it in now? And then how does it relate to the epics that follow? Um, so your Hurtis Voss is well known for the notion that, you know, really, um, uh, and I, I've been focusing on how you look at a book. Yeah. Uh, Voss focuses on the overall nature of biblical theology, that it's the organic growth of God's supernatural revelation uh, across the context of the whole Bible. And he uses the, 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 uh, the image of a seed that then sprouts and begins to grow. And so that uh, biblical theology is the uh, study of the various organic themes of the Bible as they appear, as they grow in the Old Testament, as they flower in the New Testament. My book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, uh, attempts to uh, give an example of that where I see that Genesis 1 to 3 is really the the seed of what temple and priesthood is about. And I believe the rest of the Bible develops that. Yeah, there's a, so this, this book is, uh, it's in the series by, by, uh, edited by Dr. Carson, New Studies in Biblical Theology, and it's an amazing series. It's super good. Uh, there's all these different themes that, um, various authors trace throughout the, 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 uh, the Old and New Testament in this biblical theological way. Are there, are there any, like, illegitimate themes, um, that, that you've come across that you say, like, like how, how do we know when a theme is is out of bounds or or is uh, grasping at straws or something like that? When you can't demonstrate it exegetically. Okay, that's that's easy enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> no <laughs> other answer. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, okay. So, are there any like are there any particular presuppositions of uh, biblical theology like? Is in is inerrancy uh, a presupposition of biblical theology or uh, or a Protestant? I canon? believe that the inspiration, the full inspiration of the Bible, is a presupposition okay. for doing biblical theology. Otherwise, if you take the view of various um, higher critics that mm-hmm. uh, you know there's a theology not just to the Pentateuch, but there's a theology, and I'm speaking now in traditional JE. PD terms of of the Yahwist of, of the Elohist, yeah. um, etc. You, you know they're different. Even within the Pentateuch, there are different theologies, and you shouldn't try to uh, to merge them. For example, it's really funny in in Exodus. Uh, you think about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, there, there's a book uh, called the uh, um, uh, oh, what is it? It's, it's hardening in in the book of uh, Exodus, I believe. It's written by a German, and um, it is. Uh, he, he argues that well, sometimes it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it says Pharaoh will harden his own heart, and sometimes it just says his heart was hardened. Hmm. So we have three different uh, Pentateuchal authors here inserting. Yeah. One one was a Calvinist, and one was an Armenian. And and one was kind of a, a synergist, yeah. And so he put it in those terms, but basically that was that was it. And so, so you get the, all these different theologies that you can't combine, mm-hmm. and um, so you know because uh, um, these are not written by the same person. Well, if you believe ultimately that God's the ultimate author, then you can't combine them. So you can't do biblical theology unless. You, you can combine um, 
these ideas with one another. Now you have to be careful. You don't want to perform forced harmonizations. That's the danger right. of believing yeah. Bible's inspired. You don't want to do forced harmonization. You want to leave the difficulties where they are and just leave them where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that's best. I found that uh, with some of my students have gone on to do doctoral work, they, they take very difficult texts that have not been solved. They take them as dissertation topics and, and they go a long way to solving them. It's been uh, very exciting over the years to see that, but it's because um, they left these as difficulties. These were difficulties. And then say, can, can we solve this? And eventually they did without forcing things. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, I, I do think that that's key. It's theoretically possible. Someone could do a biblical theology without believing in, an inspiration, but I think it would be inconsistent. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and and uh, I'm I'm glad you brought up that point about you don't you don't want to overplay it. But um, one thing that's been really encouraging for me, especially in Dr. Carson's class, is seeing how the Bible hangs together. And uh, when you do uh, have this this presupposition of of full inspiration, then you're able to see uh, all these hooks where. Or, or or seeds growing into fruition, or as Car- uh, Dr. Carson always says, a ratcheting up of these themes. Um, I wanted to. I'm curious about the the idea of like an archetype. Uh, are these seeds um, that a lot of them trace back to uh, Genesis? Um, I don't know if that's a condition that every theme must trace back to Genesis, but it would make sense that it would. Um, are these are these rightly called archetypes that we trace throughout throughout Scripture? I mean, it just depends on what image you want to use. I mean, I've used the seed image. Um, You you could see that the commission to Adam, that Adam did not obey, was uh, an obligation that ultimately had to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And you see that commission applied to Noah. He doesn't fulfill it. Applied to Abraham and the patriarchs in Israel, and they don't fulfill it. Finally, you get prophecies that eschatological Israel will fulfill it. And you find in the New Testament that Jesus sums up Israel so that he fulfills it, and we fulfill it in him. So I just did a biblical theology of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Yeah. Um, so is that an archetype? Uh, I, I would say, um, you, you know, that that's an, an imperative that was never fulfilled, but... Uh, um, would eventually be fulfilled. Um, so archetypes. Um, yeah. I mean, when you think of archetypes, I think, I think more of the heavenly temple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The model for the earthly temple. That's an archetype. I would, I, uh, that, that's what I would call an archetype or, uh, you know, Jesus says the heavenly priest as an archetype for earthly priest, something like that. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. Let, let's go there then. You, uh, in this uh, book, The Temple and the mission, uh, Church's Mission, A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God, uh, you, make, uh, you, you say your thesis is that the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and temples were symbolically designed to point to the cosmic eschatological reality that God's tabernacling presence, formerly limited to the Holy of Holies, was to be extended throughout the whole earth. Um, and you, at one point in the book, you mentioned that uh, there's these other temples, uh, pagan temples, uh, at the same time uh, as you know, Solomon's temple. 
And um, depending on your presuppositions, I guess, you're going to interpret that differently. And some people say, look, there's, it's no different than the other temples. But you make this point that maybe there's some, some common grace at work here, that there was this kind of memory in humanity of a cosmic temple. Can you, can you help us uh, flesh that out a little bit more in, in, in terms of archetype and, and shared memory and common grace type stuff? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, one approach is just to see, you know, you look at Israel's temple, you look at other ancient Eastern temples, and they're simple. They're, they're, they're similar. They have a tripartite structure. They have a most holy place, and they kind of have a, a less holy, holy place where priests functioned, uh, a number of priests functioned, and then they have a courtyard. And so does Israel. And... Um, Egyptian temples, for example, were the same. You would have the idol of the sun god and the holy of holies, and then you would uh, only only the high priest could go in there, and then only uh, other priests could go into the second section outside of it, which was the holy place, and then you have the outer courtyard. So um, some would say Israel is just a part of its ancient Near Eastern environment, and mm-hmm. uh, this is not, you know, the temple is not a special revelatory structure commanded by God that was uh, um, specified by him. Uh, so it's not unique. And, um, well, uh, you, you know, you could take another approach and say, yes, uh, God designed that Israel's temple be like the other temples mm-hmm. in order to be a polemic against them. Um, say, oh, you think that's where your gods dwell? Let me show you where the true God dwells. Yeah. And what true priests are like. We don't put idols in the Holy of Holies, etc. So that's another approach. You could say, if someone said, how about Israel's temples just like all the others? You say, yeah, like, you're exactly right. Yeah. And here's why. Okay. But I think, I think myself, I think something else may be going on. Mm-hmm. I'm not tremendously dogmatic about this because this is a difficult area. I mean, you know, when scripture doesn't explicitly say, yeah. I think we need to be cautious. So I cautiously say this, that, um, well, we know that there's common grace. We know that there's com- there, there, there's common revelation, revelation that's available to all people. And um, so um, I, I suggest in the book that um, could it be that the... Um, oral tradition about Eden, which certainly was available to the remnant of all humanity immediately after Noah's flood, if we believe in Noah's flood, okay? Right. So we know that that oral tradition was there and that that was passed on to Moses. And so, um, you know, as people spread out from that remnant that had that oral tradition, um, I think it makes sense that other peoples not in the line uh, from which Abraham eventually came, that other peoples uh, could have a concept of, you know, where God dwelt in the beginning and would try to, you know, pattern uh, their places where they thought uh, God should dwell among them in the same way. So it, that may be the reason because Eden was tripartite. You've got the living waters where God dwelt. You then have the garden of Eden adjacent to it where Adam as a priest was. And you have the outer courtyard of the uh, earth outside yeah. the garden. So, you know, um, 
so yeah, I think that's that that's another another approach. Um, yeah. And you know, yet another approach that I'm less confident about is that these temples were the result of demonically inspired um, architecture, if you will. That it was demons who was trying to imitate the true gods. Oh temple. yeah. Okay. And I know an author who says that. I won't name him since sure. I disagree with him, and he's not here. <laughs> for me to debate at any yeah. rate uh i think that's less likely myself but yeah. certainly demonic activity in those temples sure uh because paul, deuteronomy says that paul says that demons are behind the idols so definitely there is and so you know that that theory is possible i mean as one professor said all things are possible not all things are probable <laughs> yeah well so I, I really like your approach um particularly because um, Jordan Peterson is, is, is very famous today and, and he takes biblical motifs and, uh, I work as a, a campus, uh, minister myself with a, a group called athletes in action. And I, a lot of my uh, college athletes that I disciple, they listen to a lot of Jordan Peterson and Peterson goes with, um, with like a collective unconscious and, and he psychologizes a lot of this stuff. And I think what's really cool about your work is, um, you're, you're, giving a different plausible answer for why these temples look the like. It wasn't because we need to go deep into our psychology. It could be because there's a shared history here. There's a shared oral tradition, right. um, which is, which I think is even more plausible. And it, I'm, I'm a evangelical Christian myself. So I think it's actually uh, true. And like you said, look, we, this is a little bit of speculation because the Bible isn't specific on it, but I, yeah, I really, really appreciate your approach um, here. And I like thinking about, there is a um, there is a cosmic temple that this is a uh, imperfect model or shadow of. Um, can you can you help us think a little bit more about the garden as a temple? You you laid it out briefly for us, but um, what what does it mean that Adam would be a priest in the garden? Um. Well, first of all, he's not a priest like the later priests. Okay. Uh, there's an overlap, but. Later priests were focused on sacrifices mm-hmm. because of sin. You don't have sin yet. Yeah. So, um, in, in, in fact, some Old Testament uh, scholarly friends I have don't think that the uh, that Adam was a priest, nor that uh, Eden was a temple. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the majority of both. Um, non-evangelical and evangelical Old Testament scholarship is persuaded. But there are some key figures. For example, Daniel Block, mm-hmm. a colleague of mine at Weedy, doesn't believe that Eden is a is a temple, and uh, nor that um, uh, Adam was a priest, uh, even though in his Ezekiel commentary in Ezekiel 28, which reflects back on Eden, he, he does say it was a temple. So I, um, I look forward to talking to him about that at some point. I haven't brought that up to him yet. So yeah. At any rate, um, but so he he's one scholar. There there are others as well um, that that are actually also acquaintances of mine. Yeah. But um, nevertheless, I think that um, a- Adam, uh, first of all, he's he's put into the garden to um, in verse fifteen to literally um, the word is a bad to serve and then to shamer to guard. Mm. You, when you look at those two terms um, together as they're used elsewhere in the Pentateuch and 
especially in the Pentateuch, but elsewhere in the um, in the New Testament, um, they refer to priestly activity. Mm. Uh, now, at other times, they, they do refer to just Israelites in general worshiping. So, yes, they were to they're worshiping phrases, but uh, a number of times are also priestly phrases. Okay. So I think there's um, uh, at least an argument that, hey, this is about worship. And um, probably it is about um, priestly worship. So, um, uh, and, the, and especially when you think about when Adam's thrown out of the garden, God appoints two cherubim to guard the garden. Shamir, same word. Oh, so they yeah, okay. his role, uh-huh. and, uh, and and they're associated with a flaming sword, so that anything, any, nothing can enter that's unclean. If it does, it'll be killed. Yeah, obviously, and and that's what was to happen in later temples. If anything entered into the temple, the priest that was unclean, the priest was to slay it. Yeah. So you know, I think that all of these are sort of hints. There are a number of hints. Okay. Nowhere in Genesis 1 to 3 does it say the garden was a hekal, a temple, or a sanctuary, a hagias in in, in Greek. Um, um, But uh, you don't want to make what's sometimes called the word concept mistake. Just because the word doesn't appear doesn't mean the concept isn't there. And a beautiful example of that is marriage. Marriage is not called a covenant in Genesis 2, but in Malachi 2, it is. Yeah. So uh, I think you have the concept of marriage as a covenant there, but mm. the word doesn't occur. I think the same thing is going on with um, with temple. And when, when you see then the, um, uh, the tree that's uh, mentioned, um, uh, it has resemblances to the lampstand in the temple. Uh, archaeologists, some Old Testament scholars, have made this connection, uh, and 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 I, I think it's on um, on the right track. Uh, yeah. The tree of life, especially being similar to this, and, and when you think about it, this is not a lampstand. <laughs> this is modeled on an almond tree. Yeah. Okay? So it's an actual tree. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, uh, stylized in um, in gold form. So, um, and then when you look at Israel's later t- temple, it's got all of this botanical imagery, uh, pomegranates on uh, the uh, pillars, and mm. all kinds of trees, all kinds of flowery flowery uh, uh, imagery on the woodwork on the inside of the Holy of Holies, and. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why is there all, all of this botanical imagery in, in, in the temple? Uh, well, you could say, well, you find that in other temples, which is true. Yeah. Um, but, um, I, I think it's to reflect that these later temples are developments of Eden is to remind people of the original tripartite dwelling place of God. It's not yeah. by accident that it's, um, uh, that it's tripartite. And, um, so, um, and, and likewise, uh, the garden of Eden is clear. It doesn't say it's on a mountain, but Ezekiel 28 does say it's on a mountain. 
And it's clear that water's running down from it. Yeah. Genesis, uh, chapter two. So uh, it's a source of water. It has an eastern gate. Well, all temples had their entrances at the east. So it's kind of unusual that it mentions an eastern gate. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, and again, that it had a tripartite structure. So, um, uh, and the water flowed from it. Well, Ezekiel 48, water's coming out of the temple and flowing out from it. Uh, and it's on, of course, Mount Zion. And, and finally, as I said, Ezekiel 28 explicitly says that the being who sinned in the garden was cast out of the sanctuaries. Huh. Called sanctuaries. Finally, you get the word. Yeah. So uh, now someone, someone recently, a scholar said, well, I don't know if that's the sanctuaries of Eden. I don't know what else it could be. Verse 12 and 13 says, <laughs> talking about Eden, this being an Eden. Uh, it, it's, again, all things are possible, sure. you know, but not all things are probable. It's probable that this is Eden. Yeah. So this being was on the mountain in Eden. And he sinned. He was cast out of the sanctuaries. So sanctuaries is a term used for the sanctuaries in Israel's uh, temple. And so this is saying sanctuaries in Eden. You know, you've got basically three parts, the living waters, the Garden of Eden, and the outer part. So so that's pretty, the, pretty much the sum of it. If it feels like a temple and it smells like a temple and it tastes like a temple, then let's just swallow it and say it's a temple. Yeah. Especially since Ezekiel says, go on and swallow it. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's that's something I've come to appreciate about biblical theology is, is tracing these themes. You can find further down the line in the same motif, the, the language, like you said, the, the word concept idea. Um, I think uh, Dr. Carson brought up in class that there's like um, Satan and the serpent aren't, aren't uh, ex- explicitly associated in, in Genesis. It's all the way down the line. You have to find it. It might be in Revelation, but... Um, yeah, but it's, it's reasonable to say, hey, look, uh, the serpent is Satan. <laughs> like, yes, we can say that. And then you can find it when you trace that theme, you find it, the, uh, the word and the concept finally associated together. So well, this is a major um, issue among some uh, biblical scholars and, and, and theologians. Uh, mm-hmm. Some do not want to let later scripture interpret earlier scripture. Yeah. Um, so very interesting. So for example, some will say, yeah, you know, Israel's later temple, uh, was, can be seen as a development of Eden, but that doesn't make Eden a temple. Right. And, um, again, I say possibly, but not probably, especially in light of Ezekiel 28 and the other things we've seen about, uh, uh, the affinities with, uh, Eden and, and the, the later temple and, and Adam's function as a priest. Yeah. So um, when, when I think of Adam uh, functioning as a priest without sin, um, I, I think a lot of our concept of priest has is so tied up with mediatorial, uh, you know, on behalf of sinners. And so um, you're, you're making this case here that Adam, he's a priest before sin. Um, and that, that was like his original duty. Do you think that that was Adam's role and then his children would not be priests or is the original call of the, you know, the Imago Dei part of that um, to be a priest, you know, between maybe 
nature and and God image bearers are are all priests or were there would there been a specific office and then the rest of us would have been different yeah well first of all um you know you have to think of the duties of priests in the old testament mm-hmm. they weren't just to offer sacrifice yeah uh for example when it says uh and i and i do think that ultimately uh um with Adam being a priest and we know he was a representative figure. Of course, negatively, we know that, (laughs) but we know he was a representative figure. And if he had done an act of obedience, it would have represented all his progeny. So um, in in that sense, uh, he was being a mediatorial priest in the sense that what he performs will affect the rest of his progeny. He's a mediator in that sense uh, as being a representative. If you think about it, priests in the Old Testament were representatives. That's why they had the names of Israel uh, on their shoulders, on their breastplate. Yeah. Um, Because they were representing the nation as they came in. Now, in this case, it was the sacrifice was to uh, 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 be seen as representative for the whole nation. Mm -hmm. But they're a walking Israel in a certain sense. So Exodus 19.6 says that uh, Israel was to be a kingdom uh, of priests. And uh, probably that means that they were, be, they were to be priests who reigned. Because mm-hmm. you get the phrase elsewhere, kingdom of Zedekiah, kingdom of Og. It means that they were kings. And what does that mean? Well, they were kings who reigned over a kingdom. So kingdom of priests means priests who reigned. And so... Um, uh, well, how, how are they to be priests? Well, the preceding verse says that the whole earth is God's. Mm-hmm. And then it immediately goes into verse six. You'll be a kingdom of priests, the holy nation set apart. And so I, I think the connection between those two verses is that they were to be mediators of revelation to the dark world. Hmm. Um, and so in, in that sense, uh, priests or teachers, we know that from throughout Scripture, that one of their roles was to teach. And so um, in this regard, uh, uh, I think that Adam uh, should have taught Eve. I don't think he did a great job of it. Yeah. Uh, he, he should have taught his progeny. So he was, he was chief priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think they were to be, if you will, little priests, a kingdom of priests, just okay. as Israel was. And so, but, but he was a teacher as a priest. Priests also pray. And um, so he was to be uh, one who prayed to God as his progeny should also follow him in that. Thirdly, priests were to keep the sanctuary clean. Mm-hmm. And if he came into it, they were to kill it. And Adam was to do that. He didn't do a good job. And so God appoints the cherubim to take over that role. So um, those are at least three ways that um, um, Adam was to be a priest before the fall. And then, of course, you get the fall and you get that priestly function that begins to um, really um, consume the role of priest. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. So, uh, with with this, um, there, there was a fall. We don't uh, we don't image God as we should. We all fall short of the glory of God, and yet He, you know, 
came down in the person of Christ, uh, died on the cross to redeem us. And now we have this uh, renewed role where we are um, living stones, building, being built up into a, a, a new temple. Um, I, I wonder what implications this has for uh, the earth currently as, uh, as, um, our, as our job to make the rest of the world look like the Garden of Eden, to uh, exercise dominion. I wonder, does, is the rest of the cosmos, um, is, is the rest of the cosmos also included in the outer court? Like, should we be exercising yeah, dominion yeah. on, should, should we exercise dominion uh, on Mars, uh, do you think? Uh, like Adam's role was, with he and his progeny, if they had been faithful to expand the presence of God and thus the garden yeah. in ever increasing circles till it consumed the earth. Okay. Um, they can do that. I think Christ will finally do that spread God's presence over the whole earth um, um, and con- consummate that at his final coming. It will never be done perfectly, um, even by the church spiritually, but sure. he will complete that when he comes the final time. But I do believe we are to be Adamic stewards of the environment. Okay. Um, I don't think there's anything explicit in Scripture that tells us to do that. Um, uh, but I do think that since that was Adam's role, I do think that that will be our role in the new heavens and earth hmm. um, to be stewards of the new creation for eternity. Yeah. And uh, therefore in the inaugurated realm, which we're in now, I think that we should foreshadow hmm. that role that we're going to have consummately. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. That, that's fantastic to hear. I have uh, a couple of projects going where I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to breed um, endangered uh, turtle species. And I, it's kind of, it's kind of wild. It's kind of uh, out there, but it's my way of, of trying to exercise dominion in Illinois where there's these, these endangered turtles. And and I I like to see it in in this uh, dominion light. Do you are we limited? Are we limited to uh, the Earth, like exercising our dominion, or should we follow Elon Musk and say, hey, you know, let's let's make God's presence known on Mars as well? Um, here's what I can say: the Psalm eight begins and ends um, that. Uh, the glory of God is demonstrated throughout the earth and from the earth beyond to the rest of God's stellar creation. Mm-hmm. So I think the Psalm 8 is saying, not that the earth is the center of the universe, but it is the theological center of the universe. Yeah. So that. Um, whatever we do here should be part of um, reflecting that glory, not only here on earth, but in some way it reflects outward beyond the earth. Now I'll leave Psalm 8. Uh, I'll leave the Lord to tell me how that is. I, yeah, scripture's just not explicit. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. I think uh, one, one last question for you here is about um, returning to a physical temple. I know um Different, different theologies are looking forward to a new physical temple. And it seems like in Scripture, you know, things have been ratcheted up to the spiritual dimension. Um, do you think 
I know that you don't think we're going to return to a physical temple. Why do you think that is? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, one is that the Old Testament temple, Hebrews says, and Hebrews 9, especially 8 to 9, that the, the first physical temples were a parabole in Greek. It uses a parable. Mm-hmm. They were the figurative temples. In other words, they were the shadows. They weren't the real thing. And so those physical temples pointed to the real temple, which was in heaven and would come down upon earth, and uh, which was spiritual and will consummately be physical. Hmm. But physical in the sense, not architecturally, but that the whole cosmos would be God's special revelatory dwelling. God will dwell in every nook and cranny of the cosmos. So it's not an architectural structures can't contain God, as Isaiah 66 says. Who who, who can build for me a house that I may dwell in? Nobody. And so so that that looks forward to this cosmos dwelling. And so that's one one reason. But coming back to the type, the, the Old Testament physical temples were a type. When the type is fulfilled in the New Testament, you don't go back again and expect a fulfillment of the type. Yeah. So when the anti-type comes, that is the fulfillment of the type. It's like reversing uh, the progress of uh, redemptive history. You don't go back. You know, when Christ is a lamb, you don't go back and say, "Oh, well, they're going to be lambs again." <laughs> and um, um, He's the ultimate priest. You don't go back to they're going to be priests again. Yeah, uh, that's why you don't repeat a sacrifice. Okay, all these things when they're fulfilled, they're done. They're unrepeatable. So that's one reason. And I, I give an illustration in that regard of uh, my wife and I when um, I was studying. We weren't married, but we were corresponding. I was in England, she was in Texas, and we were corresponding and. Um, and, and, and um, falling in love through the correspondence. And I had a picture of her. It was with her brother. Yeah. And when I'd get a letter from her, I, I would look at her picture. I got so tired of looking at the brother, I cut him out. But um, I looked at her. Who knows? I, I have a friend who hugged the picture uh, of the girl he was writing and, and kissed it. Uh, I may have done that. I don't, I don't remember. Uh-huh. But um, so now we've been married 43 years got married. And so if I were in our living room and sitting in a chair and I wouldn't sit next to her, she's in a chair across from me. And if I had that same picture and I was hugging and kissing it, that would be really weird. Yeah. I would be reversing the course of marital history at that Hmm. point. And, uh, I, she, she would say, I need a counselor. She'd probably call her pastor and say, my husband needs counseling. He's hugging and kissing this picture, but here I am. Right. Hugging and kissing me. Christ is here. <laughs> He's a temple. Let's hug and kiss him and not some physical architectural structure. Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a great uh, analogy. It's really, really helpful. Well, Dr. Beal, thanks. Thanks so much for all your time and for all of your work. Um, I've personally benefited from a lot of it and I will continue to be uh, benefiting from that. And I think my audience can really benefit from learning some biblical theology and seeing how the Bible hangs together through these different uh, archetypes and themes and seeds. And 
Um, so again, thank you for your work. And the, the books that we were covering today is God Dwells Among Us, Biblical Theology of the Temple, um, and uh, the Temple and the Church's Missions of Biblical Theology of God, of <clears throat> the Dwelling Place of God. So um, go check those out. I, I definitely commend them. And uh, Dr. Beal, thanks again. Yeah, I have a new book coming out, and it's called uh, Union with the Resurrected Christ and subtitled um, Eschatological New Creation and Biblical Theology. That'll come out next spring uh, with Baker Bookhouse. Awesome. Yeah, well, I look forward to, to reading that one as well. You are uh, very busy uh, getting getting to work on these books, so I'm, I'm excited to, to jump into all of them. Well, folks, uh, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.